Mm-hmm. I'm back, babe. Are you back yet? No, you're not. Clearly a nice big wee. <laughs> Let's move on to so your taste in music. What do you like? What do you not like? Well, I think it's easier. Uh, I think it's quite typically me as well. It's easier to tell you what I don't like. Oh, please. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't like indie rock. <laughs> I don't I understand when there's too much guitar going on. I don't understand. Stop. Stop. Stop it. Okay. Stop it. Um. <laughs> I don't like things which have too many layers. Stop. Stop it. I I can't hear everything. Stop it. It's confusing. <laughs> uh, I don't like music that is ambient. I quite like storytelling. But for me, music needs to have some sort of sense of structure. Mm. Um, and I don't like things that just sit there. And it might be very pretty, but they are ultimately uh, useless to me. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't think this is because I. I feel I need to be challenged or stimulated. I just. I just don't think it's worthwhile. Mm. <laughs> so I think structure is really important. So yeah, that's that's what I like and don't like. I mean, outside of that, I think the spectrum is pretty broad. Really. Yeah. Okay. Now, your list of tracks, did you have any sort of rhyme or reason of why these particular tracks? What was your sort of guiding principle? Yeah, no, I, I, there is, there's a lot of thought gone into behind, gone in behind it. I, I think that <laughs> I didn't want to... I think when you listen to people on, on Desert Island Discs or Private Passions, there can be that sense of, uh, I need to create an impression of myself. I think I did this at university. I think a lot of people do at university where they, they like put books in their bookshelves that they actually haven't read, but like would quite like to read if they ever got around to it. But they certainly want people to think that they've read. Yeah. And sounds like you've been to my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, don't, don't be that guy. But I yeah. think to an extent I, I have actually been that guy. I've definitely thought of it from a perspective of what reminds me of things as much as I like this. Hmm. I wish I could have done that famous Elizabeth Schwarzkopf thing where she picked, do you know about this? For her, no. her Desert Island Discs, she picked only recordings of herself. Uh, so I hope that if anyone ever manages to do this to you, Alex, in your metaphor, that you only pick your compositions. Oh, of course. Conducted by yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what the world needs. I think it's time to start talking about your music. Take it away with your first track, please, Will. So my first selection is a piece by Caroline Shaw, her partita for Eight Voices. In this recording, I hope you play by her, the group that she sings in called Roomful of Teeth. Yeah. This I heard actually for the first time two years ago or something on uh, Radio 3's Private Passions. And I forget even who the guest was. And I was absolutely blown away. And I got home and I, I looked it up and I listened to it again. And I just, there is something, there's something so thrilling about being surprised, particularly with a genre of mu- music that you feel you know a lot about and actually can sometimes seem quite, stagnant in a way and the work that this i don't know if it's roomful of teeth or caroline shaw herself have done in this it's just it's just fantastic it's so innovative and not in not in a contrived way Mm. it's just amazing so the way it starts i mean if i i'd like to pick all three movements which seems like a bit of a a cheaty thing to do for your podcast if i had to pick one it probably would just be the the first track because it starts off with the spoken word and then goes into music in the most incredible way. But it's more also about the way they sing with very, they're all clearly have explored different ways of singing. Mm. And with the later tracks, you realize that their uh, polyphonic overtone singing is really, really fantastic as well. The way you can create two tones just by singing. Uh, But they've clearly explored this 
with all of their singing because at the beginning they sing with such an angular way and it's it's really really clever and this is something that classical singers do where they manipulate uh the formance of the vowels to create different harmonics so you can artificially sort of lower or, or raise harmonics based on the vowel you sing so that with really excellent classical singers you have the singer's formant which is that kind of brightness and ringiness that means they can hear you can hear everything right at the Mm. Rosette at the back, and when they come together the first way, the way they sing with this angular way, it it's the way the chords begin to stack with these harmonics. It's just so penetrative and and totally thrilling. It's just so so clever. And then you look at the structure of the work, the way the way it's based on. Um, is it based on the Galliard? I think. Oh, it's just it's so it's so clever. Have I, ever, have I said it's clever? It's definitely clever. But so good to listen to as well, as well as being academically interesting. It is thrilling to listen to. Mm, yeah. What do you think, Alex? <laughs> For most of what you were just saying, I was like, "Well, this is getting very technical, Will, isn't it?" Um, but you're <laughs> you're right. It is incredibly clever, and it won. Didn't it win the Pulitzer Prize? Yeah, I think that's right. You told me about it ages ago, but it wasn't until I sat down the other day and properly gave it attention. And I was grabbed by it. Um, I thought it was incredibly <laughs> clever. But also you could, I mean, I, I was listening to it, but not thinking about like harmonics or any of that sort of stuff. I was just not giving it too yeah. much attention. And <laughs> like, this is fun. This is great. Incredible piece. Yeah. So I, I think as well that they are very clever in the way they do it. I don't think it would work very well live. I think the way they sing and speak it uh I mean, it, it could work live in a very small room. I think, particularly if they were if you, they were surrounding you, or whatever, very unsocially distanced. But I think it would work very well if you do a concert performance of it somewhere like I don't know, King's Place, or I don't know where we have a concert these days. Then I think you would be reliant on on having a microphone. I don't think it would work. Yeah. I don't think you could create that that sound with that group of singers to fill for the space. Otherwise, but I think that's really that's that's really cool. I think that's really good, and I think. I think maybe this is the reason it surprised me is that so when I when I first got into singing and was exploring other genres, it was around the time that collegiate acapella was really making it big in the US, early noughties. Yeah. And there's a group that was doing quite well at the time called Rockapella. There's a group, um, Scandinavian group called The Real Group, who are quite well known. And they were all, you know, quite quite big then. And this collegiate acapella scene in the States was was really, really thriving and really innovative. And around the same time, I went up to Oxford, it was probably 2004, 2005, and they have a university acapella group. They have hundreds now, probably. But at the time, there was one really big one called Out of the Blue. And I didn't know about them, but I was just walking through Oxford and in like the Market Square, there they were singing Sweet Home Alabama. And they were line dancing and the whole thing visually and audially was so arresting i was like this is cool i want to do this and then they did another song where one of the guys came out and was they were all doing the backing noises being instruments and whatnot and one of the guys was he found people in the crowd and was singing to them he got on his knee and took a girl's hand can't do that these days uh because of coronavirus not because of you know i'll leave that out uh on his knee singing to a girl and uh it was all just like wow and everyone was like this is the whole feel was so everyone's like this is really good this is really cool this is Mm. really i'm really experiencing music i'm and i feel things i feel all these i feel excited i feel amused i feel uh romantic it's just it was really really brilliant so i got really got into into all that then and then in the last well i suppose 15 years since then there's been a real change of how they've recorded stuff so they used to record things live be live recordings and it was so honest and you still got that sense of real that real buzz of excitement but of course it's become much more produced and uh, all the kind of like beatboxing that they would do and and drum noises have become so sort of synthesized and overproduced that it may as well be totally synthesized um, mm. and it's all it's all become really quite stale and stagnant and there's been no sort of obvious exploring of microphone technique or anything like that uh, so when i heard this it just it just blew my mind that there was there were people out there who were pushing boundaries and and in not a way that was contrived but really really effective like just really good i have nothing to add to that that was great i just think anyone who listens to this should commit to putting headphones on and sitting down and listening to it because i think it's 
is so wonderful. If if maybe you're not listening, used to listening to choral music, maybe it's maybe it's not that um, surprising. But for me, it was so surprising. I really hope other people find it as thrilling as I did. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle. To end. the side. To the side. To the side. Around. Through the middle. To the side. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. And around and around. And around and around. To the side. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. Of the line drawn from the left side. And around and around. And around and around. And around and around. to the Beatles. Yeah, I had to include them. Uh, they're very important in my upbringing, but also I think they're very important for a number of reasons, but this is really hard. How do you pick the best Beatles song? And I've definitely not picked the best Beatles song. I've definitely not picked the top 15 Beatles songs, maybe 20, maybe more, but I've picked it because I really like its structure and within it, it holds a lot of things for me. Um, one of the first Beatles albums I really committed to was Abbey Road. And as I understand, I think it's one of the first concept albums, which is really important because I think context is really important. I think anyone who does this patapod, if you're picking a song from your favourite album, it can be really easy to think of music in terms of albums rather than singles or whatever, or, yeah. or whole, whole works rather than movements. And it's hard to pick. Um, particularly, you know, things flow really well into each other um but this is i want you slash she's so heavy and it's the she's so heavy that i really love but it's nice to have the sort of the context if i want you but in she's so heavy you just have this bass line and guitar riff and it, it just builds and builds and builds there's like a real soul feel in the way they sing it and i suppose growing up i listened to a lot of van morrison as well good Belfast boy he was and my mum I suppose she she heard Van Morrison when he was in Belfast according to her he was just a spoiled little kid um but she also heard the Beatles live two nights in a row when they were in Belfast uh so I always had this kind of sense of excitement about about both those artists yeah um and there's also this Hammond organ that that features in it and sort of just goes a bit mental just improvising and that's sort of my tribute to Booker T and the NGs. It was really important for my dad. It seemed like he plays all the time. I really love that. So yeah. I have a lot of different factors coming into this, into this one song, but it's very, very simple in its structure. And it does, it does really, really build. Um, and the only way I can think of comparing it to is I was listening to Johnny Cash hurt and the way that it's sort of like one note, just sort of getting louder and louder. It gets more and more epic. Yeah. Does that feel about she's so heavy? It goes on for a really long time without without doing an awful lot, just just gently layering and gently building and increasing in intensity. I suppose if we're taking it for the desert island context, that that's quite dangerous. But you know, if I don't get bored of it after eight minutes of the same thing, then hopefully I won't get bored of it after <laughs> days of the same thing. But um, I think what it really comes down to is I really like things that are structured and things that develop. And don't do the same thing. I mean, again, I would refer to Lodson's Omanian Mysterium. But um, <laughs> as an example of something that doesn't develop a theme or doesn't add layers. It's just really interesting what you're saying. Because I, my relationship with the Beatles, I don't think is the same as everyone I've met in England. Because we didn't, I mean, the Beatles weren't really anything that we listened to growing up. None of that modern music here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we listen to country music, so Johnny Cash, yeah, but none of that sort of, yeah, modern stuff, really, even though Beatles wasn't modern in the 80s, but anyway, 
So there are a few of the classics that I know, but the majority of the Beatles output I don't really know. So this was brand new mm. to me. And a terrible starting point, really, if you don't know them. I mean, well, it's... no, it's interesting. It's quite repetitive. And I was thinking very repetitive. really early on, you sort of glance down at the, the duration of this and you're like, <laughs> oh, this goes on forever. But <laughs> I, like the sort of last 30 seconds, I was getting so into it. And then because it suddenly stops, Yes. I, it felt as if the rug was just like pulled from underneath me. I wasn't ready for that to stop. It yeah. was almost as if there was this huge preamble and then suddenly I was like engaged with it. I was in in it and um, and then it just stopped. I was like, oh God, <laughs> which I find, I find really fascinating because it goes back to structure, doesn't it? Um, yes. And how did they do that? Which is very clever. No, I agree with you about the silence. That that sudden a sudden ending of it is so like, oh, hang on. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad you got into it as well because it, it is very repetitive and it, it takes. I don't again. I don't know how you listen to it. Hopefully, you had headphones on, but it's the kind of things that, yeah, if it's coming out of tinny small speakers, obviously it just seems a bit like that's a bit boring, isn't it? Yeah. But when you're when you're really surrounded by that sound and that repetitive bassline and where the t- layers build, you get really much. Like, yeah, it's just quite visceral, isn't it? Now, your next choice, I actually can hear my mother singing this. So if you know, in the kitchen, preparing food or something, you can just tell us a bit about this one. Okay, so again, uh, this is is not the best song Simon and Garfunkel have written. I mean, for sure it's not. I kind of have an odd choice from that point of view. But Cecilia carries a lot of meaning for me because of what I've learned about it. Okay. This is this is this is kind of vaguely pretentious, but I do for me it's important. So at the beginning you have all this exciting rhythmic stuff, all these sort of noises clanging around. Yeah. And uh, basically, as I understand it, they were just like banging things in a room trying to see what worked. Oh, okay. Uh, which is incredibly creative, right? and it's it's a risk, it's risk taking. And they were just like, does this work? Does this bang, bang, bang? Does this work? And it does work. It's really cool. It's not the greatest thing, but it does work. And that's fun. And to to find out if something works, you have to, you've got to, you've got to try, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I find really difficult in life and something that I'm trying to work on more is that when I try something new, I want it to be really good first time. And that's obviously not going to happen. Obviously, the yeah. first time you do anything, it's not going to be very good. And getting over yourself, getting over your ego to do that is really, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, and so trying something for the first time is difficult. And they do do that. And that's that creativity and that exploration is so important to take that risk to try that, to, to be a bit dangerous is is really important. And then um, I think I found this out when I was programming a concert for St. Cecilia's Day which is a day you know very well, being Benjamin Britten's birthday. Mm. And the song tells of this this girl, Cecilia, and it seems that they were getting on fine and he's gone down, he's, he's left the bedroom to go and do something and he's come back and she's no longer there and uh, he's upset about it. And it's been suggested, it's thought, this is actually an allegory for St. Cecilia and, and creativity and the 
really the song is about how creativity can just desert you, how you can be one minute writing songs and really feeling on top of your sort of creative game. And then the next minute it's just, just gone and you're left there going like, how, how on earth am I going to do this? How will I, how can I possibly do this again? And the answer of course is to, to try and, and try and create. And I think the combination of that knowledge and the, the banging together of wood blocks and other sort of household equipment is a really lovely reminder of that. And it's a cute chorus and it's nice, but for me, it carries all that. And, it, you know, and if, if this was written at a moment of writer's block and it's still that good, you know, you think yeah. oh, there's no better lesson for, for keeping on trying. So I think it's a, it's a that. And I think that's, uh, if I was stuck on a desert island, uh, I think I'd really like that. great shout my mum would love it maybe she'll listen to the podcast now um <laughs> doubt it so did you, you you said a lot you listen to a lot of country music but a bit of bit of simon and garfunkel as well uh well i think this was just a song that like my mum knew so i'm really bad at knowing <laughs> the names of things and I think that's sort of the same. Like that was sort of the culture of growing up. It wasn't like, oh, here is a Simon Garfunkel album, and this is one of yeah. the songs. It was it's nothing like, song. yeah. And so they'd listen to that sort of stuff, but there'd be lots of country and western music, which I sort of at the time would hate. But I think I've said previously on the podcast, like earlier on in lockdown, I was listening to a, another podcast about Dolly Parton, and I've just got this whole new appreciation for Dolly Parton's music. So I yeah. think it's incredibly honest. And I think she's quite a genuine person. Like what you see is what you get. And I <laughs> value that in life. But isn't that important? Isn't that, isn't that amazing how important context is for that? Like knowing about why someone's written something or the, the reasoning behind an artist's work, I think it, it is totally transformative. And that's what I found about the composers that I admire. So like Benjamin Britten, when you get to know a piece now i'm trying to figure out where that sits in their timeline what was else was going on at the time and goes back to that context thing wasn't it what is it that was influencing that at the time and why are they writing it in that sort of particular way or setting that text in that way which leads nicely on to my next choice mm-hmm. <laughs> take it away so again it's it's that idea of context i think i first heard this piece in a concert and I remember thinking oh, that's a good bit of music as you might yeah but it wasn't I was it was definitely worth commenting on I definitely thought I definitely remember saying that was really good but I hadn't read any program notes or anything about it and I can't remember how I came across it again but it's this piece by Rudolf Mausberger called Wie liegt die Stadt zur Wust uh, my German's awful it's probably not that I can't remember if there's an umlaut over the it was Wurst or Wust, I'm not sure. Wurst, I think. Um, which is a setting of some of the Lamentations of Jeremiah, maybe? Yeah, I think you're right. It's all that sort of Jerusalem being desolate, like um, Jupiter Sancti and that sort of thing. Uh, but in German. And, um, it, oh my God, it's amazing music. I mean, it's just, it's so it's so moving. It's so It's so full of emotion.
the first time I saw it, well, when I, when I then discovered it again on YouTube, I don't know who was singing it, uh, but it was all these images of Dresden bombed, mm. just just a rune. And then I obviously did my homework, and it, it, it turns out that in, in February 1945, the Allies bombed Dresden horrifically, and he lost... He lost his his cathedral. He was the Kapellmeister, I think, the Kreuzkirche in Dresden, right? Um, and he lost, I think, I think eleven of his choristers were killed in one night of bombing. And I don't know how you can begin to. Oh, it's 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 very overwhelming to think about, and then, then even more incredible that he wrote this this piece of music. He's also written a a requiem, uh, which I understand is performed uh, yearly to commemorate the destruction of Dresden but this piece is so it's so alive and it's all, all in German I think he's moved the text of the Lamentations around a little bit but it's it's absolutely stunning and it's exquisite and I, and I watched this YouTube video with these images black and white images of bombed out Dresden and it was so it was so powerful and then there are other pictures you know of him conducting in the ruins of the of the cathedral and it, it carries so much emotion but this is something that I think is interesting to talk about because I've given you the context of it and that makes it, of course, it makes it more moving. And watching yeah. it with the images as well, of course, it makes it more moving. But the piece itself, the music carries this carries this emotion. It immediately makes me feel something and I, I imagine that's true of a lot of people, regardless of the context. I remember doing it, I did it with um, a chamber choir and we did a, did a concert, and I think that went relatively well. It was a Remembrance, Remembrance Time concert, and uh, I tried to sort of hammer home the idea of, of what was behind it and about well, that sort of thing. I probably tried a bit too hard. Anyway, we took it on tour in the summer, and we were in um, Portugal. I performed it in Porto Cathedral, and it was one of those days where, towards the end of tour, it may have been the last concert, everyone was a burnt-out wreck from sampling too much of... Um, Porto's finest port and it was one of those rehearsals that you have which was absolutely awful like, no one was interested and it was terrible I, I couldn't convey anything that I wanted to convey there was, was getting no response from the choir and I was really worried because I really wanted it to be a good tour and a really good end concert and this piece I always think it just it deserves just it just deserves such a good performance so uh, in the in the concert the only choice I had was to try and put as much of my emotion into this piece and I think I changed how I conducted I added a lot more weight into my to my arms and I never let the sound drop I was always always carrying it carrying it through maybe my wrists were slightly more stiff but I was just always trying to carry the sound through and really show in my face how I felt about this piece mm. and it really worked uh, either, either it worked because of that or it worked because uh, I'd kept them up all night for the last six nights, heavily drinking, and they were all absolutely exhausted. So they were they were on the edge of tears anyway. But the choir really committed to it, and it was it was beautifully sung because of the emotion they managed to put in their voices. Yeah, and many of them were weeping, and it was it was a truly extraordinary experience, which I, I'll never forget. But afterwards, one of the uh, bases, a very sort of logical Icelandic chap said, why do you think, to me, why do you think that that was so beautiful? I said, well, obviously, you know, the context and, you know, the fact that it was written when the destruction of Dresden and blah. And he said, uh, Will, have you, ever, have you ever experienced a bombing? I said, mm, no. Have you ever lost 11 people? Uh, no, no, I haven't. He said, do you think you can you, you can imagine that? I said, no, I absolutely don't think I could possibly imagine that. He said, so why do you react like this to music? And it's a really, it's a really good question. Uh, I I don't I don't know. Um, I think framing it in that context is is helpful because then I'm I'm aware that the emotion is sad. That is the emotion. It is it is tragic. Yeah, very yeah. tragic and, and devastation. But if if you if I hadn't put the context around that, but I hadn't put that framework around it. The piece clearly just carries a huge emotional energy mm. uh, in the way the music's written that that makes you feel things. 
And I think that is, I think that's just totally, totally magic. It's an interesting one about, you know, you've not experienced all of that loss, but how can you try um, and get that emotion across? I guess it's because you will have ex- experienced like sadness and you're going back to, even though you haven't experienced the particular experience, you've experienced that emotion and you're trying yeah. to convey that emotion to the choir. And I think another pertinent point that the guy made when he was asking me is, which you've just reminded me, which is that as well as asking me this question, he said, he said to me, do you think, how many people in the choir do you think understand the German as they're singing it? Obviously the answer is very few, if any. Yeah. So, so how can they then really communicate those words? And the answer he was after, I think, was that the music was does a lot of that for you. But if you do read the the bits of the lamentations that are used, it is it's very very powerful, a lovely biblical allegory of of this awful destruction. And it's a nice way as well of trying to 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 vent your feelings about something in a, in a kind of safer but also more profound way. Mm. Is there something to be said about just the power of the music in itself as an abstract thing? How much of that is doing the work of conveying the emotion? Like what percentage of it is the music doing the work? Or what percentage is the sort of knowledge of why it was written and the text? You know what I mean? I think, so I think the knowledge makes me sit up and pay more attention. Yeah, but yeah. The music clearly carries... This piece, this piece is clearly emotional mm. to me, but it is, of course, more tragic with the context. But I think it's, I think it is the music that carries that. Yeah, that it does. Yeah, that really makes it emotional. I, I think there are other things to to think about here in terms of context. One thing that's come to my head, which is perhaps it might seem more unrelated, but um, the difference between boy choristers and girl choristers. Obviously, scientifically, fundamentally, there's absolutely no difference in their voice sound. But boy choristers are often considered by some, not just um, traditionalists, to be more beautiful. And I think that's because the voices uh, will disappear. They will change, mm. more obviously than girl ones. Um, and because, therefore, they're transient, that makes it more tragic. And if you're looking at, if you're, if you're enjoying it, you're thinking, this, is, this has to end. And that makes it more tragic and that makes it more... Beautiful. So obviously, context can make something. It can obviously accentuate a feeling. But the other example I think I said to you before, I wrote down in my notes, whatever was. Um, so my friend Jess sang at her sister's wedding, and she sang an aria from Camille Saint-Saëns' uh, "Samson and Delilah," and she sang this whilst her sister walked up the aisle, and uh, it was exquisite. It was so so beautiful, and the most perfect thing like it it just completely worked it was so so beautiful but the aria in the opera is where delilah's trying to seduce samson so she can find out what makes him so strong so it's a very conniving seductive aria yeah the context of that ruins it you know absolutely destroys it totally inappropriate for a wedding yeah and so what what makes that beautiful because obviously in the in the opera that that context does make it something, but out of that, that piece still carries all of this emotion, yeah, and tension and beauty, and equally with orchestral works and words and things like that. But then you know, I don't know. It's a very interesting conversation to 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 work out answers to this. Well, I think so. Um, surprise, listeners. Um, Will is coming back for a special episode or series of episodes um, where we discuss the music of Star Wars. And I think this question of context is something that we'll keep coming back to because John Williams is notorious. He's famous for creating leitmotifs and themes for characters and place and feelings and all of that sort of stuff. But he, and he'll, he'll play with that quite a lot. But if he writes a piece of music or a theme for a character and he thinks that the music without the association of that character makes a lot of sense for a particular scene, he'll shove it in without any sort of explanation. There are many moments where it's like, but why is Yoda's theme playing here at all? Like, Yoda's not influenced in this scene or influenced the scene or a part of the scene or anything to do with it. Why is... And it's just because of the character of the music. 
And it's like, yeah. that's going to convey the emotion of what he wants the audience to feel. So we'll certainly be coming back to that in future episodes, listeners. Don't get too excited. No doing it, it's going to be bloody great. I'm really excited. Tell us about your next piece, Will. Right, well, this is, this is a bit easier, in a way. The Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis by Ray Fawn Williams. Choo! Um, oh, I just I love it. Uh, it's just fantastic. Tell us about your next track, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do feel like that. I feel like, well, if you don't like it, you don't like it, but you're wrong. But no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just glorious, isn't it? I think also it links in with the John Williams thing. Mm. And it, this question about uh, originality and creativity and are they fundamental for beauty? I, I don't know. But, um, so it's based on this psalm tune by Thomas Tallis, the third psalm tune of his sort of uh, I think so. Archbishop Parker, I think. Anyway, I mean, it's a, lo- it's a perfectly lovely psalm tune. But this piece is so much better than that, and he's taken everything and and just and again, it's it's a real. Hopefully, it goes with what I've been saying before. It 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 has real structure. There's a real sense of a journey in the piece. There's real development. There's definitely tension that's created, and therefore emotion that's created. And it's just it's absolutely it's absolutely gorgeous. I think one of the things I really like about the way Rayford Williams constructs things and, and writes things is he there's a sense of timelessness about it. I think because he he relies on these sort of folky harmonies and modes that it feels like you might have heard you might have heard it before. Mm-hmm. But also it also it taps into this sense of longing. Um, yeah. And I can't remember who who said music was the art of longing. It might have been Percy Granger actually. It might not have been. But there's definitely that sense of of hidden yearning in it, which I find in a lot of folk music, as well as a sense of belonging. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really quite profound. Oh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, it's gorgeous. Well, it's interesting because I, when you said like it's full of emotion, I was like, yeah, I don't know what that emotion is. Right. I just, Context. Um, <laughs> yeah, I adore this piece, and I every time I listen to it, I can't get enough of it. I get lost in it. Yeah. I feel as if I'm swimming in that string sound and yeah. I'm being caught up on in everything. And it's just it's so beautiful. And I think you're what you were saying about it being sort of like that timeless nature is so true. And I think I really like the way you described yourself getting lost in it. You do you do get lost in it, don't mm, you? Yeah. So this piece was gonna be in the final concert that I was going to conduct in Nottingham before I moved, oh, yeah. which obviously had to be cancelled because of oh, COVID. Um, so it now, like, it has that extra sort of like yeah, edge of tragedy. Yeah, <laughs> unfinished business. Well, exactly. Yeah, and I'm. It is something that I want to conduct in the future, definitely. But I was a bit worried about it because I'm so used to listening to it and just getting lost in the sound and not really wanting to know where like the downbeat is and all that sort of stuff. I quite enjoyed just sort of sitting there and letting the music, you know, take me. But that's so important, isn't it? I think maybe we're similar in that in that regard. But that's why I need music to have structure and to less an extent emotion but to to take me on a journey because i want i I do i love that bit of escapism i love Mm. being swept away and often away from my own thoughts but just that's such a what an amazing thing that can happen yeah yeah and i think what i like about it as well just comparing it to the previous piece on your list because that is very much a sad piece of music and is it's sort of directing you to a particular emotion whereas for me this one doesn't i mm. feel incredibly moved by it by the end of it and almost as if i've been wrung out completely but i don't feel <laughs> sad i don't feel like you know happy but i feel that sense of catharsis and yeah but i wonder if you will begin to ascribe this notion of of that sort of unfinished concert that that never quite goodbye and then in the future that will grow and you'll you'll have that that sense of of sort of melancholy about it uh, or maybe maybe you won't maybe you'll find maybe you'll conduct it in a concert in manchester and you'll have a 
a new really happy feeling that you you put with it Thing I suppose I wanted to conclude from from perhaps the Marsberger was that, that that music has this this uncontextualized raw emotion mm, that that's yeah. what it provides and then, and then it's up to you to then create the narrative around it or or you can do the work and, and and context will will sharpen those edges for you yeah but I think that's a really fascinating thing isn't it lovely lovely should we move on to something that is slightly how do you pronounce the next the title of this next song? Yeah, so this is a Quechuan piece. Well, it's not. It's it's um it's called Hanak Pachap Kusi Queenin, I think. And Lord, I can't remember who who it's by, but it, it's got sort of South American Renaissance roots, um, and it is in a Quechuan dialect. If that means anything to anybody, <laughs> tumbleweed. <laughs> this is quite interesting. Again, it's a bit a bit like with the Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles. It's it's not it's not the best track of this genre, but in my last few years at university, are you yawning? Yeah, I'm just quite tired. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> no, I am finding you incredibly engaging, uh-huh, and uh-huh. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I didn't think my yawn was that loud. Oh, here comes another one. <laughs> um, no, tell us more about Hanna. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So again, I was I don't know it was end of, end of the end of the noughties. I discovered these um, discs by Ex Cathedra. Jeffrey Skidmore, who runs them, had done a lot of research into Latin American Baroque, which sounds very exciting. Because I think a lot of people hear the word Baroque music and they think oh, boring. And but when people hear oh Latin beats, they think mm, dancey, uh, and it is a combination of those two things. Above my, I don't find Baroque that boring, and it is these discs are amazing. Um, there, there's some really awesome tracks amongst them. They're so dancey, so exciting, so inventive, and they're, they're beautifully sung and recorded. Hmm. And arguably, Anak Bachap is is the most boring piece on the menu. There's loads of the pieces that have that wonderful sort of six, eight into three, four, I want to be in America, sort of feel the yeah, da, da, yeah, da, 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 da. Uh, and there's loads of fun. And this is just a, a four, four march, really. But I guess like any, with the, I, you know, I can't pick the album, so I'll pick something that sums up for me. And I think there are three or four CDs that Ex Cathedra have made exploring this, this music. And at the beginning of each one, they start with, Hanak Pachap, and they'll do a number of verses. I think they found like 14 verses. They only do like, you know, four or five or whatever. Okay. Um, but what's exciting about it is the different faces it can have. So maybe they'll start off with uh, just a drum and the choir, and that is really awesome. It's just a really awesome sound. It's really beautiful. It's very powerful.
but then they'll have one where maybe you'll be completely instrumental and you have these amazing cornets and sackbarts blaring away, particularly with upbeat trills from the from the cornetti, which to me is just like Monteverdi. And I mean, he is the notable exception on this list, really, in terms of like cool music that I love. It's so it's amazing how how emotions can be changed and fueled doing that, or your excitement perhaps is a better way to describe it. Mm. Um, but it's just really it's really cool because it's so simple and what I just yeah it's, it's so it's so effective the way you can dress things up. I mean, if anyone who I imagine a lot of your listeners will be people who have sung with you or like sung in the choir, and when you do a nice when you're doing carols and you're trying to find a, a way of you know making the the fourth verse of A Company Faithful more interesting you might say oh do you have the back row humming or something like that but you can do that and it does it does add a new dimension it adds new colours and you find ways of bringing out different things from from music and you realise how rich and varied it can be and I think that's really that's really really cool I think it goes back to the sort of stuff that I've done with community choirs and in schools to an extent when you've got a tiny bit of musical material and you're trying to make a performance out of it it's not a piece, it's not written out, it's we're going to do it in different ways and we're going to approach it differently every time we do it. I find that really exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not too prescriptive. Really yeah, important. and it, it's particularly when with the sort of choirs that we work with in terms of chamber choirs or um, cathedral choirs where everything's written down, you're spoon-fed everything, it can be very difficult to try and break away from that, I think. Yeah, completely. And then it goes back to the whole, what is... I think in the last couple of years, I kept saying to many choirs, the music isn't the book, the music isn't the page, the music is what we're doing together as human beings. Oh, brilliant. That is... Thanks, I'll be using bro. that one. But it, it, it's... Well, I think it's true. And yeah, I've seen individuals go on that journey of like realising what I mean by that. Because it's basically another way of saying, can you get your head out of the coffee, please? And <laughs> look at me. But the thing that I've realised that I love about music and what uh, I feel very privileged of doing is making music with other people. Which is why when I was doing my Masters at Birmingham, I wasn't as engaged with some of the other composers because a lot of them were more interested in writing the notes on the page and creating their masterworks. I was like, I want to... I want to get through this bit of writing the music and then do the music with the people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to get to that point. That's the bit that I'm really excited about. And I look back and I go, it's, I'm not surprised I'm doing what I'm doing now because actually that's, if that making music with other people, that's really exciting. Yeah, going back to this piece and back to you fundamentally, having that sort of raw music manuscript that you can play around with, I think is incredibly freeing and fundamentally a really good thing and I think we yeah. need to do more of that I really like the way you described how we can be bound by what's on the page and mm. how we need to be liberated from that and I don't think it just comes across in how we do how we perform things or how we uh, how we voice things but also like allowing ourselves to enjoy the music rather than trying to recreate something Yeah. so I think that Sometimes we have like too much of an idea of what something is in our heads, and we try, we we try and do that. Oh, like this piece should sound like this, and this should be done with a straight tone, or this should be done like this. And yeah. oh, have you not heard this? This group do it; they do it like this, and so it should be about this sort of speed. And particularly with early music, where you know most of the things in the copies we have these days are all editorial anyway. You're totally at license to to you know make stuff up. And I think this this is sort of why again I wanted to include this Hanak Pachak. Because the the discs of this Latin American Baroque stuff, they reminded me that music is fun. Mm. Um, and there are pieces where the choir are sort of going, hey, 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 and sort of just, just totally letting rip and letting their hair down and all sorts of instruments are being brought in. And it's quite a cacophony, but it's so, it's so celebratory and yeah. so... It's so fun. Music music can be really, really fun. And I think, well, I certainly often find myself maybe 
not prioritizing that as much as I, I should. So this is a really important reminder of that. You know, if someone wants to get up and tap, the, if you want to tap your foot along in a concert, like, cause you're enjoying the music, if you want to get up and dance, if you, you know, then do it. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think we've been since the notation system has been put in place and people started writing down music. There's something about that freeing thing about like folk music and, everything sort of being done orally and being passed on orally where it's yeah. more about the experience rather than what's written down on the page. And you sort of think, well, notation has been really great, but in a way we've become bound by it. Oh, completely. And it's quite ironic in a way, because I think one of the most terrifying um, words you can use to, uh, well, I guess someone like me is the word improvise. And I just blindly yeah. panic. I think, oh my God, I have no idea what that means. Um, which is ironic because, you know, my sight reading isn't fantastic. You know, I, <laughs> I, often, I often don't see what's on the page. And in that way, I'm a true improviser. <laughs> but no, I, it's really, it, it, it is terrifying. And I, I think I certainly do feel, yeah, like a, I've been bummed by that. And that, that's no one's fault really other than my own. But it's a, a trap I think we can all fall into. Well, no, I... Mm-hmm. I think there's more to do with the system that we're all sort of going through. Like when you're a member of a choir and you sing music and a repertoire and stuff, that is having quite a profound effect on everyone who goes through that. Yeah. Because you're you're learning about these composers who are all sort of, you know, sacred beings and idolised and yeah, yeah, geniuses yeah. and stuff. How dare you get that bar wrong? Yeah, exactly. And it's something... I like a lot about Baroque music. When I did the Monteverdi Vespers, mm. going, oh, really naively, doing the Monteverdi Vespers would be a really good idea. And then finding there's lots of issues, like what what pitch is the right pitch to do this at? Yeah. Which parts should be sung? Which parts should be played by instruments? All of that. Yeah. And you think, I thankfully realised really early on, I was like, well, actually, what we're doing, performing the Monteverdi Vespers as a whole in one concert, is not how it was meant to be written. It was more like a sort of a portfolio piece and you sort of would oh, dip in and out of it, apparently, rather than sit down and go through a whole performance. Because liturgically, you wouldn't perform, you wouldn't be able to do Monteverdi Vespers liturgically, right, okay. I don't think. But there's just a lot of, lot of it in it. And it goes back to the whole thing about the Monteverdi Vespers being like almost an audition portfolio for him to get the job at Venice. Um, I don't know if there's much stock in that. So how did you how did you choose how you were going to do it? Because that, that must be must have been terrifyingly overwhelming in terms of the amount of choices you could make. Oh yeah, it was ridiculous. Um, and I, I mean, I do what I always do. I just ask people who are more experienced and cleverer than I am. So because we were doing the concert with, joint with St. Mary's and mm-hmm. uh, we had the lovely John Keys, I spent a time chatting with John and saying, well, actually, you've done this before. What did you do last time? What? How do you think we should do it? And he told me some of his ideas. I spoke to the, because we had the English Cornet and Sackpot Ensemble, and I spoke to them about yeah. how do you think we should do this? And, and they were up for anything, really. I mean, I suppose the answer to that question really is, book the English Cornet and Sackbut Ensemble and then oh, yeah, yeah. let's see <laughs> completely um, but even because they were they were given some suggestions but they weren't like telling me the answers so I was still yeah. like oh right okay I should probably do my job and actually make some decisions um, <laughs> so I went away and was like right okay I actually really like doing like the Magnificat if you do it as written it's incredibly high and some of it the tessitura is really high and the, the tenor duet is just like loads of top g's and when you've been singing for like a good hour and 20 minutes to have to do this tenor duet with the same top g's is not ideal but the effect is incredible and i was like i want to i want to do that i used to just mess around with it and then you come up with that and then on the day you're rehearsing with the instrumentalists and they're saying oh how about like if we do we split the instrumental section of the i think it's the the ave maristella there's lots of instrumental interludes and it's like well actually let's do it so that's wind one time and then strings the other time like basic things like that but you were sort of (laughs) making it up as you went along and just playing around with it and 
then playing around with the space and saying, actually, we're going to have the Theobo and the Tenor right back out of sight. Is that going to be okay? Is that going to work? Is the are the players going to sort of hit back because they're out of sight or worried about if it, the noise is going to travel or whatever? Yeah. But just taking a few risks and playing around with it. Um, and that's what I loved about that piece because it wasn't, it's very different to saying we're going to sing the St. John Passion where it's all sort yeah. of there and there's a particular way to do it. There were so many options and that was fascinating. And I just know that, I mean, I can't wait to do it again, but I know the next time I do it, it's going to be so different. Yeah, and that's fantastic, isn't it? I think that's really, I think that's really exciting that it's, it, can, it can be so different. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, when you learn one piece of music and you don't sing it again for another year and comparing it to, like, you know, live shows of... Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, oh, no two nights the same there. <laughs> definitely weren't. But I love the idea of doing those pieces and actually they sound, and they're sounding different every time. And there's just different choices that can be made. And some of them yeah. are your choices, but some of them are the instrumentalist choices. But it, that giving that license to, to some professionals, but like people who are really good at what they do and, and say, you know, it's just such a amazing thing to then hear people be playful and be creative mm. uh, and and go with that and I, I think this year when I think about this piece then I, I think about all of that I think about how how something how music can be fun how something like baroque which some people might have regarded as quite prescriptive and a bit stuffy actually can be totally totally brought to life and so exciting and so freeform and yeah music can be fun don't be afraid to tap your foot which is uh very much why I included the next piece as well. I'm 17 come Sunday, um, which is a well-known folk song collected by Percy Granger, who I love in his own right. Uh, but it is a Percy Granger arrangement of this that I, that I really love for mixed voice choir and brass ensemble, because it's a really creative, I think it's a really creative and cool arrangement it really does make you want to i mean the piece anyway is a you know makes you want to tap your foot and and dance but he really he really gets that Mm. and uh, if you look at his score actually it's hilarious because the way he writes out the the sort of nonsense folk words ru rum ray foddle diddle diddle foddle diddle day walk for air diddle i do he's sort of very he's very precise with how he writes and all his all his instructions are those of an obsessive which he was, but it really, it's really, which goes against, I suppose, what we were just saying about being freeform, but it really works. He really understands how to make this come alive and in, in his, his, his version of it. I mean, what a hoot like you just want to sort of get up and and dance around to it i i had to include something by well i had some folk folk some folk music for reasons we touched on with the vaughan williams i think that there's something about folk music that when you listen to a piece you sort of feel like you know it you sort of feel like you've heard it before do you get that yeah no completely the first time i discovered this piece or this tune was the vaughan williams english folk song suite which right. we did we listened to i think uh, a level I think it was a brass band arrangement or something, or wind band. And 
It's like, I feel as if I know this. But I obviously <laughs> hadn't. And didn't realise that it was Percy Granger who had actually collected it. And Well, I think that's another fantastic thing as well. I've long admired Holst, Williams, Cecil Sharp, Percy Granger and others uh, who, you know, are part of that that sort of conservation project of collecting folk music before it before it died out. I mean, I don't know if they felt like it was dying out, but I mean, it, it feels like to an extent it it has. You know, mm. I guess with the advent of radio and television, people don't sing to each other anymore in the way they used to, and lots of folk songs have have fallen by the wayside. But I suppose, ironically, given what we've just talked about, it also is that moment where things became less oral and more written down, and yeah. therefore you know, who were sort of lamenting that to an extent. So, but I'm glad we have them rather than, you know, than the other option, which is not having them. No, completely. There's some amazing stuff that uh, they all, all collected, but you, I was fascinated by Percy Grange in particular because I discovered him when it was in my first year of university, uh, the first year, which was maths. Um, and he, there's a, there's a maths problem that was proposed by this, this, um, textbook which was what we were told to go and discover called the Percy Granger problem and basically he hypothesized and proved mathematically that he could throw a cricket ball over his house run through his house and catch it on the other side and he pr- proved this mathematically that he could do it within the realms of, sort of human ability and then he proved it physically by doing it um which is you know relatively amusing but you think oh that's interesting why what on earth is that person like and then you know, you go on Wikipedia to find out about Percy Granger, and my God, the things you discover about that man is absolutely extraordinary. Um, a a, a cataloger of sadomasochism, which is, you know, remarkable. And he's played an awful lot of awful tricks on his estate as well. There was a box that he, he locked up, and in his will he said, you can only open this a certain number of years after my death. And then on the allotted day, people opened it, really excited to discover, you know, unknown works composed by him, but it was just a just a, a photo album of <laughs> horrible things he'd done to himself. <laughs> it's just, just such a great troll, isn't it? Um, <laughs> just a, a brilliant mind. And then there were some really amazing accounts of him performing. He was a real sort of celebrity pianist, um, like a kind of a pop star of his time, performing in to hundreds of thousands, or at least tens of thousands, at the Rose Bowl and stuff in LA. I think he was just like a complete eccentric, but. Um, his folk song arrangements are are fantastic, and the folk songs that he collected as well are some of the ones that have really stuck in my mind. Certainly, the tunes have stuck in my mind much more mm. than any others. There's that really wonderful arrangement of um, Brig Fair that he's written, but also he collected that song, which is great in itself, and he collected it on phonograph. And you can actually oh, listen wow. to the original recording. You can listen to that. The British Library have uh, digitized them all. So Gosh. you can you can go listen to this guy Joseph Wright, whatever it was, singing it in 1906, which I think is I think is amazing. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So yeah. I guess I guess including Grange was was important for me in this list because you know whenever I think about him, I do I do think about all of those things uh, at once. But I mean, most fundamentally, this piece is a real song and dance, and just really bloody good fun. really alex so music is all about 